Lord, as always, uh, we come in need of your uh, teaching today. Lord, I feel a great responsibility to prepare what, uh, what you would have me say. Lord, I don't think that the Holy Spirit just works on Sunday morning. I think he works throughout the time of preparation during the week. But Lord, we need you to do the communicating today. So Father, we pray uh, that, that accurate, correct doctrine is taught, but that you take it and transfer it to the heart of the individuals in here. Father, we ask you to lay your truth on us today as we continue to worship through studying your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My wife, Melissa, grew up uh, Catholic. <coughs> Her family was Catholic, and she grew up as a little girl, always attending Mass. And around the Easter season, they would go and they would have kind of a responsive reading type thing. We don't do that here very often, but you know, occasionally in our hymnals and things, we'll have responsive reading where the worship leader will read part of it and the people will read part of it. Well, they would do that with part of the Easter story. And so every week, every year during Holy Week, they would come together and they would do this responsive reading. And the priest would say some of the things and the people would say some of the things. Well, every year the people were required when it came to that part of the Easter story to say, crucify him. And that was something my wife didn't want to do. She was a little sweet little girl and it made her uncomfortable. It bothered her to say that. And so she would leave that Easter service, and they wouldn't say a word. They would leave in a very uh, solemn mood considering the sacrifice of Christ, and they would go out and get in their cars in silence. Well, after they got in the car, Melissa turned to her mother one day and said, Why did Jesus have to die? And I think that's an excellent question for us to look at today. The first thing I want us to see is that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23 tells us this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Looks like we got some wrong scripture up there. I apologize. All right. So have you ever heard the saying, somebody, when, you're, when you're trying to take uh, control of something or give instructions about something, Somebody might ask you, who died and made you God? Have you ever heard that? Well, uh, the reason they ask that is they know that God has the ability and the right and the authority to say whatever he wants. You may not, but God does. So nobody died and made him God. He just is God. And whatever in the world he wants to tell us is what is right. And so when God declares the wages of sin is death, then why is it that way? Well, I'll talk about some reasons it's that way. But the primary reason is that because God says that that is the way it is. You know, um, I have a friend who is, is able to write computer programs. And he was entertaining his grandchildren one day. And he was writing a computer program to cause some things to happen on the screen that would entertain the grandkids. So he made it look like there was water across the bottom of the screen and sky across the top two-thirds of the screen. And then he created a boat that was sailing on the water. And so there goes the boat across the water. This is sort of interesting, but, you know, he wanted to add to it. 
So he makes this airplane flying up above in the sky. Well, you know how little little boys are. That's uh, that's interesting, but they want somebody killing somebody else, right? So uh, my friend made it where the airplane could drop a bomb on the boat. And that was more entertaining for the kids. Now let's imagine for a second that that boat said, this is not fair. <laughs> this is not just. I don't have any weapons that I can fight back with. And you are an evil creator. Okay. You know what my friend would have done if that weird thing had happened? He could have hit delete and boom, there goes the boat, right? Now, why would he have the authority to do that? Because it only existed because he wanted it to exist. It existed because he chose to create it. And having chosen to create it, if that boat gets all rebellious, he can hit delete and be completely just in what he does, right? So we need to understand when we talk about God and the concept of sin that, guys, He is the Creator. He is the one that made us. He made us for His pleasure. And He has every right to do exactly what He wants with us and to demand from us anything and everything that He sees fit. So what exactly is sin? If the wages of sin is death, we better know what sin is. Let me read you a quote that explains it well. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, or in nature. That's from Wayne Grudem. And that's a good, that's a good explanation of what sin is. Now let me give you a, a better sense of what sin is by quoting Dr. R.C. Sproul. Sin is cosmic treason. So many of us, I, I dare say all of us, do not treat sin as, as the horrible thing that it is. You know, the more a person um, lives with God, the more a person gets to know God, the closer the relationship to God gets, the more sin is revealed in the life and in the heart. You know, um, as I grow older and as I walk longer with God, things that uh, didn't bother me a few years ago, I'm starting to see those as sin and realize that I need to take care of those. Um, Dr. Jerry Bridges, who is a, a well-known, well, he's deceased now, but he was a well-known Christian author. Uh, I got to hear him speak one time, and he was saying that the biggest, the big sin that he was struggling with at this point in his life was his fear of flying. And I thought, well, Dr. Bridges, how is the fear of flying a sin? And he explained it and said, I don't trust God as much as I ought to. And that is the sin that I'm dealing with. I look forward to the day when my biggest issue that I'm working on as a sin in my life is being afraid of flying, okay? So sin is anything that goes against, it's a failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Now, we're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Most of us are. Most people are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Although there was an organization that went out and asked people in the street, can you name the Ten Commandments? And there were person after person who would say, uh, no. And then they would ask the same person, 
can you name 10 different brands of beer? And they'd go, oh, yeah, and they'd name them off. So I don't want to assume we know the Ten Commandments, but most of us here in the South are at least familiar with them. The first one, if we look in Acts 20, which is one place we can find the Ten Commandments, the first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, you may say, I'm good there because I don't have any idols set up in my house. You know, I don't burn incense to any, uh, any little statues. I don't have this problem. Well, do you remember, though, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? And that's a great question to ask. And it's a great question to get because if somebody came to me and said, Hey, what do I need to do to be saved? I would, that would be a joy for me. And I could tell them, right? Well, Jesus didn't handle it the way some of us would have handled it. He said, uh, well, follow the commandments. And the guy said, I've done that since my youth. Well, we know he hadn't done that since his youth because he didn't actually properly understand them. And the way we know that he didn't is because when they would get to the end of this conversation and Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and come and follow me. Well, the rich young ruler was dismayed and upset then and he went away saddened because, why? Because he couldn't obey the very first commandment that says you shall have no other gods before me because his wealth was his God and he preferred that God over the one he was speaking with in the flesh. So that first commandment, is one that most of us have broken. You shall, know, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven or earth or that is under the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So again, this is going along the lines of idolatry. The next one says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Have you ever used the name of the holy, holy, holy God as an expletive when you were frustrated or angry? If you have, then you have broken this commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All right, I'm not going to park on that one because there's some debate about whether we should still observe the Sabbath or whether that was uh, relegated to the old covenant and we're under the new covenant. But there'll be plenty here for us to mess up on. The next one says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. All right, is there anybody who would say, I have always and perfectly honored my father and mother? Well, if you've ever disobeyed them, then you have not perfectly, absolutely honored your father and mother. You shall not murder. Okay, good. Finally, I get to one. That we haven't done, right? I mean, not many of us have killed anybody. Well, there's a monkey wrench that gets thrown into that one. Jesus, in Matthew 5, 21 says, You have heard that it is said to, the, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, so Jesus raises the bar 
and says, hey, if you are angry with your brother, then you are guilty of this, this uh, sin of murder. And then he says, then the Ten Commandments say, you shall not commit adultery. Again, we think, okay, that's good. I hadn't done that one. But again, Jesus raises the bar. In Matthew 5, 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, there we're in trouble, right? The next one says, You shall not steal. Now, that's, uh, you shall not steal things, you shall not steal any time, anywhere, anything, including work from your employer, for example. If you're at work and you're supposed to be productively doing your task, and instead you are browsing Facebook, well, sort of, you're stealing time from your employer, right? So, most of us have stolen something at some point. Next one says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now that's talking about lying. Have you ever lied? If you say no, then you just lied again, right? (laughs) So this is a tough one. Everyone has lied. I talked to a fellow one time, and I asked him if he had ever broken any of the Ten Commandments. He said, no. And I said, well, are you sure about that? And he said, yeah. I said, have you ever lied? And he said, no. And I said, you've lied to me three times since I walked in the door. But he didn't agree with me. All right, so the next commandment says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, Rick Springfield reminded us back in, uh, back in the 80s when he's saying, Oh, I wish that I had Jesse's girl, right? That, that's what covetousness is. <laughs> All right, covetousness is wanting something that somebody else has. Most of us are guilty of that one. So let me ask you, consider for a second, with just the Ten Commandments, have you ever broken God's law? Now, if we're going to be remotely honest, we're going to say, yeah, we have. We've broken the law. Now, the bad news is this test is a pass-fail kind of test. The Lord is not going to grade you on the curve. You either have kept the law or you have failed to keep the law. Now the way this pass-fail test works is, you can miss exactly zero. (laughs) All right, that's a high standard. I realize that. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it. Guilty of all of it. So, if there is any sin that you've ever committed, and with me there are thousands and thousands of sins that I've committed, or at least that I've committed over and over, you know? So, if there's one sin, what does James tell us? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So I'm trying to tell us, folks, that there is bad news so that we can understand the good news that is to come. So truth number one that I am trying to get through to you today is that the sovereign and holy creator God of the universe says that the wages of sin is death. Truth number two, you 
are guilty of sin. Now, I am guilty of sin as well. But I want you to think about and internalize that you are guilty of sin before a holy God. You know, sometimes we read the passage that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's true. But I don't want us to think about everybody being a sinner. I want us to think about you having sinned and rebelled against your Creator. Truth number three is that because God is holy, He must punish sin. You know, if you were to go before a judge and you had committed a sin, uh, you had broken the law, and, and you had been caught, there was no defense for it, you couldn't say, well, I didn't do it because you were caught red-handed doing it. And you go before the judge and you say, all right, judge, I know I broke the law. As a matter of fact, if we go by what James tells us, we've broken all the law, right? So you've broken all the law and you go before the judge and you say, hey, judge, I think you're a nice guy and I think you realize that everybody messes up. So I'll tell you what, why don't you just let me go, even though I've, I've committed murder, I've stolen, I've done all these things that the law prohibits. How about you just let me go with a stern warning and we'll call it even? Now, could a judge do that? Well, no, because the judge would be very unjust, right, if he let you get away with breaking the law. And so God being completely just, he must punish sin because of who he is. Now, none of this has answered the question of why Jesus had to die. All we've seen so far is that sin requires death. He had no sin, so there was no penalty of death on him. So the question is, why did Jesus have to die? The answer is, he didn't have to die. He chose to die in your place. Now we're going to talk more about that next week. Lord willing, when we answer the question, how do I benefit from Jesus' death? But what I want us to see today is that there is a holy and righteous God who by His nature and by the fact of His holiness must punish sin. And that one day we are going to stand before Him. And He is either going to punish that sin in you or He is going to punish that sin in Christ and what He has already accomplished on the cross for your benefit. You see, I can't, I can't pay for your sin. I couldn't die for you. If I were willing to die for you, to take the place of your guilt and your sin, I couldn't do it because as a sinner myself, I would only be paying for my guilt. So the way that there was a substitute for you was that God had to send His Son who was perfect and righteous and holy and who never, ever committed sin to take your place. Let's think for a second about the gravity of who we rebel against. 
You know, if I were to commit uh, sin, let's say I lost my temper. Okay, if I were in, in my office and I got angry one day and I lost my temper and I punched the wall, that would be foolish and childish and, and silly, but it wouldn't really hurt anybody except me, right? All right, but let's say that I was still angry and I went home and I kicked my dog. Well, that's a little more serious, right? Because the dog didn't deserve kicking. He just got kicked because I was in a bad mood. And that's a bad thing to do, right? I shouldn't have done that. Well, then let's say that I I met with Bailey. We were talking about music and I was still mad, so I punched Bailey. Well, that's worse, right? (laughs) Because Bailey is made in the image of God. I can't be punching people. I'd go to jail or he'd, he'd whoop me or something. Something bad would happen if I punched Bailey, right? Now let's consider I went to a political rally and I got close to President Trump and I punched him. Well, the penalty would be more severe because if I lived through that, you know, if the Secret Service didn't kill me, <laughs> then I would go to jail probably for a long time, right? So when we sin, it depends on who we sin against as to how grievous that sin is. And so when we rebel against God, our Creator, there's no higher one that we can wrong than God. And so I know some people don't, don't see sin very seriously. I don't see it seriously enough. I don't, I don't think any of us do. But we, when we consider the majesty and the greatness of the one that we sin against, I think we can sort of begin to get an understanding of why sin is a big deal. Because, you know, if I wronged you, you could say, okay, you know what? I am so uh, such a magnanimous person that I'm going to forgive you and nobody has to die. <laughs> and I think some people wonder, well, why can't God do that? I mean, why, what's this death thing about? Why can't he just get over it and forgive me? Well, we talked about how he would be unjust if he did that, Right? Because we would break the law and there would be no, uh, no justice to happen. But also, if I do something wrong, uh, if, if I back my car out today to leave and I run into Deanne's car, then there's a problem there. And if I go to Deanne and say, I'm really sorry, uh, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't get mad. She'd say, no problem, let's just get it fixed. But then if I said, nah, I don't, I'm not going to fix it. I don't have any money or any insurance. So I'm not going to fix it. Well, she'd have every right to be mad at me then, wouldn't she? You know why? Because she would have to deal with it. She would have to pay the price of returning this thing back to its original condition, right? Now, she might be so magnanimous that she says, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And she pays to get it fixed. But, but there's still a cost, right? There's just a cost to her now if she chooses to take that burden on herself. And so that, guys, is what God did for us. There was a problem we needed fixed, and we couldn't fix it. We did not have the resources to pay for our sin and rebellion. We had nothing to offer. The only thing that we could ask for would be, you know, people want justice, right? Everybody wants justice. But we don't want justice from God, because justice from God would be to say, all right, you created thing that I made because I felt like making. You've rebelled against me. You've sinned, and you've sinned in all these different ways, all these different times, and you've rebelled against me. I said, don't do this, and you shook your little puny fist at me and said, I'm going to do it. And then you said, do this, 
And we did the same thing. We said, nope, not going to do it. You can't tell me what to do. So we rebel against God. And then we see the problem that he's just and he has to punish sin. And so we might think, well, how can we fix this? How can we buy our way out of this? We can't. We got nothing. <laughs> it's like if I was telling Deanne, hey, I got nothing. I got no insurance. I got no money. I can't do anything to fix this. Well, then Deanne would have to say, okay, we'll send you to jail. Or she could say, all right, fine, I'll, I'll bear the expense myself. That's what God did when he fixed this problem for us. We were penniless. We were useless in remedying the problem. And so what God did was he provided the solution. He provided the payment that we could not pay in order to create unity again between us. Now I want to tell you more about this in the coming weeks. Next week we're going to talk about how specifically the death of Jesus benefits me. And then on Easter we're going to talk about the meaning of the resurrection. I'll give you a preview of that one. Guys, the meaning of the resurrection. Think about for a moment if Jesus had gone around saying he was who who he was and that the disciples had said, hey, this is the Son of God. And he had healed people miraculously. And then he had died and rotted in a tomb. We'd be left to say he was crazy. This guy had delusions of grandeur. But because of the resurrection, we can say every single thing that he said is true. And every testimony that we get about his life and his work is true. And I want you to come and be with us on that Sunday and we'll talk about that. I hope that I've helped us understand today that sin has wrecked us. Sin has bankrupted us. And so Jesus, he didn't have to die, but he chose to die in your place to bear the burden of that payment that we owed that we couldn't possibly pay. Now the great amazing news is we can appropriate that payment for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5, toward the end of the chapter, tells us how to do that. The Bible says that He made Him, and that's God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ is willing to trade with us. We have our sin and our bankruptcy, and that's all we've got. He's got his glory and his perfection, his obedience. He's willing to trade with us. He takes our sin, and on the cross, he paid that sin price that we owed. And that's great. That makes us not owe anymore. But what's even greater, or I don't know if it's greater or not, but it's incredible, is that he imparts to us, gives to us his righteousness. So no longer are we bankrupt. We are abundantly rich before God because we have the, the, the greatness, the obedience, the perfection of Christ counted to our account. You know, I had a friend tell me one time, I have figured out uh, the problem with poverty. What we need to do is if we're poor, we need to get together with a millionaire and marry him. And then we're, we're good to go, right? That sounds simple. <laughs> so if you are having money troubles today and you are single, now you know what to do. You marry a millionaire. All right, the problem with that is finding a millionaire that wants to marry you, right? 
We have one in Jesus Christ. We have one of infinite riches that is willing to join himself to you and clear out your bankruptcy and give you riches in union with him. So if you are here today and you say, you know, I have sinned. I have, I have done all those ten things you read and then I've invented some more and I've done them over and over. If you realize today that you are a sinner and that one day you're going to stand in front of God and in His holiness and His righteousness, He is going to judge you the way that He ought to. And you say, I am in trouble. I don't have a way to pay for this. I need somebody else to pay for me. Then what I want you to do is when we get done in a minute and Bailey comes up here to sing, I want you to come up here too. Because I can introduce you to that one who can join with you and give you the riches in Christ that you need. Okay? So guys, pray as we stand together. Let's stand. And pray for those around you. Some of us have been saved since we could remember. We've been saved for a long time. Pray for the ones here who are not. And then let's sing. What are we singing, Bailey? Take my life. Take my life.